want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. When I first started talking about the membership economy, there just weren't that many academics and researchers interested in studying the power of customer retention. That's why I am so happy to see some of the best minds in finance, marketing, and strategy focusing on how to build and measure durable relationships between organizations and the people they serve. Today's guest, Ava Escarza, is the Jakursky Family Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Her primary research subject is customer management, with special attention to the problem of customer retention. That's great news for all of us building subscription businesses. In today's discussion, we talk about the right metrics to measure and improve customer retention, how to use pattern recognition to predict which customers will be most valuable, and why cohort-based analysis is so darn important. Ava, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm interested, how did you come to become interested in customer retention as an area of study? It was a bit random, I'll fully admit. I was never a marketer. I was never a marketing major. I did mathematics as an undergrad. When I finished, one thing led to another, and I got an internship in a bank as a CRM junior. I did not know that CRM meant customer relationship management. I was told that it was going to be data analysis, and they thought a person with a math background could do helpful stuff there. So I joined the bank. It was a very good opportunity because it was where I wanted to be in location-wise, etc. It was a good moment to have that job. In the job, I knew nothing, nothing about marketing. So I helped these people with Excel, analyzing data. It was a non-sophisticated bank back then. This was 2001, 2002. And there was this day in which the CMO came to the marketing department, like running from the very, very senior board meeting, where all of a sudden she was told that millions and millions of pesetas, it was the currency in Spain, were just going to ING, the bank from the Netherlands, who just entered the market in Spain. And they were freaking out. They were really like, they wouldn't know what to do with that. So as a CRM junior, all I did was to extract all the money that have left the bank and summarize it. And when they saw the quantity, they were amazed. What I was amazed was that they didn't know that that money had already left the bank. So it's not even to predict that people will be taking their wallet somewhere else. The money was already out of the bank. So for me, it was fascinating that a marketing department had not been looking at that. So I did get an offer from the bank to actually stay, and I just didn't take it, and I went and do and did a PhD in marketing. It's not that that day I decided to do the PhD. It's not. There was other things that actually mattered at the time. But the idea that all these customers, all this value, all this money had left the bank, and they didn't even know, for me, was horrendous and fascinating at the same time. So when I started the PhD, I knew I wanted to do something about how you figure out how people keep 
being your customers and how to keep, you know, in the bank would be the money, but whatever service you have to them. It's so interesting. I mean, money leaving the bank is about the most direct churn that you can ever measure, right? Because they literally take their money and put it somewhere else. It's interesting that you said the CMO, I think about marketing often as being very focused on the front end of the funnel. And it's like, once the transaction happens, that's the finish line for me. And I go back out and try to find other customers. But it sounds like what fascinated you is that you felt like they should have been thinking that more as the starting line for understanding the relationship. Yes, because maybe, first of all, back then, I didn't even know what customer acquisition was. So it was not top of my mind, the fact that they should be going out there and trying to figure out how to attract more people and how to grow that way. But it was clear that for me is that you have a relationship with the bank and kind of the default would be to keep the money there. And the fact that all these customers actively went to the bank account to take the money out, it was so active churn. I didn't maybe know the terminology back then, but the fact that it was so active, the fact that they're taking their business elsewhere and elsewhere, and they didn't know, for me, was kind of really shocking and kind of determining a, bit, a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's also, that was exactly the time when I started to become interested in retention as well. It was just sort of interesting time-wise. I was consulting with Netflix right around that time and was noticing the opposite, which was they were completely focused on who left, when, and why, which was so interesting because I'd been in product management. I'd never seen that before. I'd never had a company that I'd worked for either as a big firm consultant or as a product manager that was as focused on what we've come to call you know, retention metrics or churn metrics. But everybody was so focused on let's get more customers. Let's, let's call it that instead of customer acquisition, but let's get more customers instead of let's keep them and let's understand why they leave and let's optimize for the customers that come and stay and are actually profitable for us. Yeah, I think in this case, the marketing department per se was not even focused on acquisition because it was some kind of the more territory people bringing value to the brand. I think it was also a very siloed organization. I mean, it was Long time ago, it was also in different market. I think the U.S. in that case, in metrics, it's been more advanced of actually being fast at adopting metrics and having more, you know, consultants <laughs> and people helping them with the business. But there, I think it was totally isolated in the business of the marketing department was not even thinking about that at all. And the fact that they had to think about keeping the money and they didn't even have the metrics, I thought that there would be something easy, at least to help or to do and to learn to do that. So then you turned down their offer to go get your PhD. You chose marketing as opposed to math or something kind of more that maybe your professors might have thought you'd go into at that point. What did you go and what was your intention when you started your PhD? What did you want to study and what was fascinating to you at that time? So at that time is at this point is like 2000 and I don't know, two or three or something like that when I started applying. This is the era, at least in, in Spain, it was the era of data mining. Now they will call it AI. There was data mining back then, right? It's like some companies that have good billing records. Now they have data and let's leverage this data. So I was fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the idea that data could be informative of decisions, but I didn't know what business decisions were or what kind of business decisions people made. The true reason why I started a PhD in marketing was because I did have an internship in marketing and I thought it was going to be easier to get in. So I applied to business schools. I applied to marketing because all I wanted at first was to get in and then I will figure out what to do and do my thing. And that's what I did. I got into London Business School. I got there in the very first semester I took the marketing class and it was a class about probability models, a class about how to take customers' transactions and how to mathematically kind of infer 
what these people are going to do and why they're doing it. And it was a course about how from the data to learn customer dynamics and how if you aggregate all of these insights and you aggregate all of this data, you can actually make good predictions. And that for me was fascinating. The fact that I could just from transactional data could infer so many things. It was kind of the merge of the mathematics and the statistics that I had with the business. So since then, I was like, I want to be in marketing. I was very random before that. And since that moment, I was more like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. And that's why I pursued the PhD in marketing, where I started with collaborating with the Royal Opera House in London, analyzing their customer database and trying to help them retaining patrons. And so it was all involved about more data and figuring out what to do with data. But again, this was like, I started in 2005. So yeah, it was still early days. Yeah. And you've continued down that path in terms of being able to predict what's going to make someone leave or what's going to make them stay or who's more valuable. In layman's terms, what are some of the mathematical ways that somebody could make those inferences early on? Or where are the right places if you were talking to a subscription business or even a retailer that sees the same customers periodically, where do they start if they're trying to get their arms around who their best customers are or how to predict who is going to churn and who's worth saving? Yeah, I'm not going to go into methods. So I see two main problems that data can help us solve. One is the measurement problem and the other one is the intervention problem. The way I think about customer management or managing customers for any way is there's a measurement problem. You need to measure things and to understand quantities, you need to understand behavior and you need to intervene because the only way to manage is to intervention. So if you're thinking about measurement, for me, measurement is methodologies to figure out who are the high value customers. How can I predict customer lifetime value, for example? And there is tremendous, fantastic job by my former advisor, whose name is Bruce Hardy. is a long collaborator with Pete Fader and now Dan McCarthy, Pete Fader are big names in this area. So they have developed very good methodology to find out and figure out who is a high value customer. And I think that work, this kind of methods as actually my first very class that I was talking about is the class that it was called probability models. And it was the basis of this work that Bruce and Pete were doing together back then. And I think those models are, in later what it means is like, you assume that people are making transactions in somehow a random way, but there is something systematic. So I'm the kind of person that I'm high frequency and low value items, but it could be a different margin. And you are the person who are different frequencies. So I like this methodology because it's probabilistic, meaning I allow error in the data. doesn't mean that the data has to be exact on behavior, but by integrating so many customers, I actually can predict very well what the people like you will do. So these models are not about, Robbie, you exactly tomorrow are going to buy at 7 p.m. It's not about that. These models are about the people with these patterns are expected to do this and this and that, and they predict very, very well. So for measurement, I think this kind of approach is developed by these people. CLV models, probability models are very, very good. When it comes to intervention, I think companies need to think more about, it's not about what is going to happen in the future and identifying the type of customer. For me, for intervention, is more about, should I do it now? Should I do it with you or with others? Should I give you this coupon? Should I give you this? So it's more of a targeting or a personalization intervention. Now, when I'm thinking about these problems, I don't want a probability model that is going to predict aggregates in the future. What I want is something that tells me more about you, individual customer. 
So for that kind of problem, so the intervention, I have seen better results when people apply more these newer th methodologies for machine learning. There is now causal machine learning that you can actually see who responds to which interventions. And these kind of methodologies are, in my view, in my experience, better identifying, for example, who to target, whether to do it now or later, and more tactical decisions about intervening. So I think I would recommend companies work in this space to do both. First of all, I think the first step is measurement. The first step is I want to identify who are my high value customers. But then if you're going to figure out how to keep them and who to send something to and how to actually then engage individually, then the other methodology I think is better to make those decisions. Yeah. It's interesting. I love how you broke it down. And I think about some of the practitioners that are listening, especially those that are, let's say in a smaller company and might not have junior CRMs to do all of this great thinking before they go off to do their doctoral programs because they're, you know, so brilliant. But for the average practitioner who's kind of in the trenches, you know, step one is really about being able to measure. This group of customers are more valuable than that group of customers. Customers that look like this, that they came in through this front door, that they made this purchase or exhibited this behavior, that group seems to do better than these other groups. I think the very first level is simple triggers, simple signals to identify who's high value and low value. I think the first step is always measurement. And to have a good measurement, I wouldn't start sophisticated at first. You start with the triggers or with the high signals. And it's like the people who bought this, the people who did that. Then the next level is like, no, now I want to predict for the customer base and I want to go into the future. Then I would build from it. I mean, if you're just getting started, I love this. And I'd love maybe an example of a kind of business. Like if I had a clothing store, what kinds of triggers might I be looking for? What would be maybe something that you've worked with? I think one that is big is like channel of acquisition, obviously. Everybody understands that depending how you get the customers that are coming from a promotion, they're coming from to the store, however they're coming from, there's a lot of differential value in whether customers are coming from different channels, right? Could be physical channels or online channels. And this is one that I have seen a lot of difference, really. Like uh, you look at customers who came from this channel and you realize that, yeah, they have higher or lower value. But the next question is like, okay, within this channel of acquisition, like how can I actually separate those who are really the ones who will stick with me versus not? I've seen a lot of value from understanding the first purchase. I have this, it's a very technical paper, but really the essence of the paper is that we developed this methodology that it was very much, we call it the kind of the first impression. For most retailers, for example, the large majority of customers bought just once. So if you think about it, there is one piece of information that you have for every customer in your customer base, which is the first purchase. Everybody has a first purchase, right? Everybody has a first purchase. So what we did in that paper was that are there products that actually are very high indicative for value? And actually you do find that that is the case. So the company haven't made, haven't done that analysis and uh, you go backwards. You have some model for prediction value that you could use any of the methodology that we were mentioned before. And it was really by looking at, okay, like, can I actually find individual products that were predictive of value? Then, of course, the paper, then we did a more sophisticated tool. Yes, please go ahead. Just to clarify, make sure I'm understanding this. That means that like, if you're going into, let's say Nordstrom, people who buy purses as their first purchase are more likely to come back regularly or people who make it all the way deep into the back of the store and buy lingerie there are more likely to come back. And you can almost do an analysis where you say, here's all the customers that bought a purse first and all the customers that bought lingerie first and all the customers that bought shoes first. 
and here's how much they were worth over the course of the year or how many times each of them returned. Absolutely. It's very simple. Very simple. And the thing is, you could think about categories because theoretically it makes sense. People say, for example, who buy maybe shoes, they're willing to spend more. So the company will know that they're more high margin maybe. And if I buy something smaller, then I'm going to have higher frequency. So I'm going to come soon after. And there are reasons why just different categories will have different kinds of value. And this is, I think, the first order. But the second order that we got into this, that we find in that paper, the paper was using, it was kind of a beauty retailer. Looking at the basket composition was already predictive of value. So even within items of similar value, you don't have to go like like from shoes to a t-shirt, like not even that radical. We actually found that there were basket compositions that were predictive of higher value. What was in the good basket? I cannot tell you exactly what it was in the good basket because no, the thing is what we did in the analysis was the company had very, very large number of SKUs. So it was very difficult. If you start looking at one by one, you're not going to find anything. So the whole idea of the paper was to actually, what we did is we did a methodology that takes all of these KUs. It's very machine learning kind of magic wise in the sense that you take all these KUs that they were in the whole category of products and via some machine learning, we put them into a latent space that you don't have interpretation of what it is, but identifies the clusters. Now, what I can do later is that you give me a, a basket and I can tell you exactly the rating on those clusters and therefore the CLV. Well, the idea was, you tell me what you bought, you show me the basket, I can tell you, I can predict your CLV. Now, of course, I want to I wanna caveat that you don't predict exactly CLV, it's impossible, but it was actually very good to actually separate the high value customers versus the low value customers. Now, one thing that we did find that I think it wouldn't surprise anyone was that when people were purchasing in holidays, for example, Christmas and so on. So these people are lower value because many people would just come, buy one gift and don't come back. So there was seasonality. So what we were looking at the basket, we were looking at, okay, we're going to look at baskets also depending when people bought the first. So the idea was that how can I identify the dimensions of the first purchase that are highly in lower predictive? And for sure, seasonality is because of the discount, but then conditional on that, they were actually basket compositions that could have a seal that could be 2X and 3X. So much different. I love this. And I'm sad that you can't tell us what was in the basket, but I understand. And I'm thinking about other businesses I've worked with and I'm thinking about seasonality, you know, other examples of seasonality. People that sign up for anything relating to managing your financial picture, your personal finances. If you come in right before tax season, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be out of there right after tax season. But if you come in in January as more of a, this is the year that I get things under control, you're more likely to stay. And if you come in at some random time, like July, that means that you're probably pretty motivated. So it kind of was counterintuitive that the big spikes of new customers were actually, we get great volume and have great numbers in that month, but retention and lifetime value would be much lower. And I think what's so interesting about that, and this is, I think, where you're going, is that once you know those facts. Then you say, well, what do we do with that? That's where the interventions come in. And you say, hmm, so does that mean that we don't spend a lot of money to acquire people over tax time, even though a lot of people come in? Or does it mean that we invest more in onboarding those people and see if my favorite example is you came to Disney Plus for Hamilton, which everybody did, but we're going to get you to stay for the princesses and the National Geographic documentaries and the ESPN you know, sports matches by surfacing that to you. 
we're, we have this moment. We know you only came for Hamilton, but we're going to do our darndest to keep you. I cannot agree more. This reminds me of one organization I worked with that was a subscription-based. It was a year subscription-based. I recommend to let's do the analysis based seasonality. Let's understand the seasonality in this pattern, right? So exactly as the example you put with the financial service, what we find is that subscriptions that happen around Christmas, this was in a European market. Around Christmas, what happened was these were people with higher churn rate the year later. So the company at first, the people in that team, the first time they saw the data, they were like, oh, easy. What we're going to do is we're going to extend the membership, not for 12 months, but for 13 months, because now it's going to be January. And I'm like, you're not realizing that these people don't renew because they don't see any value. They got this membership, they gifted to someone, right? And now it's, oh, they was gifted by somebody else. But it's like, you're missing the point here of the seasonality is actually to understand how can I provide value for you at a later stage and so that you continue. So yeah, I relate so much with that. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because something that I admire about you is you're obviously very quantitatively rigorous, like you're a sharp thinker, but you're also like, you have that human side and that what I think of as sort of common sense, street sense, logic that says, let's think about why this is happening. Why is everybody who signs up at Christmas canceling at the first period, at the end of the first year? What could be the reasons, right? Let's develop some hypotheses just based on intuition. We have this data. What could be the reasons? Which reasons can we test, right? And if the answer, as you said, is they never intended to stay. They said, oh, this is the right price point. I'm going to buy these people a one-year subscription. And by the way, the person they bought it from never asked for it, right? And doesn't want it. So neither person is really motivated to continue. It's just helpful to know that. And it's also helpful to know that some customers are more valuable than others. And there I've said it, right? And it's hard to admit, but once you admit it, then you can start thinking about your interventions, I like you said about the common sense. I think that actually I love numbers and I love methods, but the first principle is always common sense. And I think is the one that takes you almost all the way there with that. And I think the more we put methods and data first, the more we lose common sense because we just don't see the forest from the trees. I agree with you entirely. Another thing that I observe is that once you start seeing metrics and you see that seasonality, you see that people are not renewing, there is an obsession from trying to keep them all. An obsession to now that I see these numbers, I'm going to just, all I'm going to think is about how to change the number. And of course, increasing retention is a fantastic thing for the growth of business, but maybe there are many things that you cannot do and you shouldn't be doing because you're going to be spending resources in actually something that has no change. Yeah. So it is kind of a combination of really understanding the numbers, but also using your common sense and saying, A, what do I think is going on here and what can I adjust? And B, Back to the quantitative side, how can I test and see if that is true before I go too far down that path and really invest in January as a month for retention? The other thing I thought you were going to say, actually, when you're saying they extended to January is a lot of companies I've worked with, if people aren't renewing, they immediately go to, let's drop the price. Oh, yeah. Terrible. I'm not saying that every discount is a bad idea at all. I teach marketing. <laughs> it would be fired if I say so. But I think there are many, many promotions that destroy value, literally. They just give the promotion to the person who was going to buy anyway, and they destroy value trying to convince the person who's going to leave anyway. And it is true that for some people, maybe you didn't find the right price point at the beginning and changing price is so important to get there. It's a lever that is so easy to change 
but it could be very value destroying, I believe. So how would I know if I'm running a, let's say a subscription business and people are canceling at the end of the first period, how would I know if it's because it's too expensive, price is wrong, or they tried the product and didn't like it, or they were never that committed to the product to start with. Either they wanted to just watch Hamilton pay their taxes, or they said, I'm going to check it out, but I'm not sure it's right for me. Two things. One would be with understanding their behavior and definitely especially now that you have a view on what these people are using. In the case of TV, I see what they're seeing. And I see that if you were watching everything, I mean, every week, and all of a sudden you, you unsubscribe, I don't think it's that yesterday you were not giving any value. So, you know, maybe the price is not good for you. So I think that is one of the understanding part is that I need to understand what your behavior is coming from. And by looking at what you do, I'm going to try to get a sense of the value that you get from my service, for sure. And the other aspect is more interventional, which is more earlier on, especially. I always encourage firms to test in the small batches, but I don't see any harm on testing small promotions because that tells you a lot. I wouldn't test promotions only on people that I have identified that for sure will leave me. I will test promotions across the board to see if I'm actually matching really the price point for most of my people, for most of the population. Now, let's say you imagine you launched something and you have a 50% churn. And it's like, oh my God, I cannot sustain this. Terrible. I cannot sustain it. This is all a hypothetical. But what you do is you are going to run a promotion. Do not drop the price across the board. Run a promotion, randomize it, and look at who is responsive to that promotion. The person who responds to a 10% off is getting value from you. Because for 10% off, they're willing to stay, right? So that is a good measure. Now, then you compare and then you then you see who is more responsive to a price change and helps you understand the proportion of people who would have stayed was it 90% of the price, for example. I think it's a good way to both segment customers for whether they're getting value or not. And second of all, to actually say like, okay, is it really that my price point could be slightly higher? Then you'd run the scenario, I would have saved all these type of people. That's really interesting because you're kind of looking at both customers likely to stay, unlikely to stay, and you're looking at with the promotion and without the promotion. So you have four different groups. And so you actually are learning a lot and probably have a lot of hypotheses about what you think is going to happen. And then you see what happens and you can adjust your understanding, which I feel like a lot of businesses, like they don't really understand at a core level why things are happening. I totally agree with you. I mean, if you look at before running an experiment, if you look at your data and everybody indeed watched Hamilton and nothing else, that is already telling you, you don't need experimentation for that. Really, that's you were deeper into how people are using your service. But if you have a good chunk of people who are watching until the very end and then they'll cancel, chances are that a better price point will work for them. Yeah, because they are getting value. Exactly. But I don't mean to say, look, I'm going to analyze the data. I'm going to see that everybody who's watching things until yesterday, right away, I'm going to send them the promotion to all of them. No, that is what we need to test. The people who are current, who've been using the product all along, and the person who used it on day one and hasn't been in since they came, you want to see with both of them. Can I get another chance with group one? Does it work to keep group two a little longer or to keep... 85% of group two instead of just 75% of group two. Exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. And if you were managing churn for a subscription business, what would be the metrics that would be most important on your measure 
dashboard on what you would want to keep track of? I'm a big fan of dynamics. I believe everything is customer dynamics. So the two things that I would have for sure is a pattern, a line, not a number. I don't start with a number. I start with a line. I start with a figure that gives me a line over time. So I think it's way more informative to look at all the cohort of customers who are in certain period of time, how they evolve over time. So I'm a big, big fan of what is called the cohort analysis, because looking at different age of customers over time really tells me, if you come and tell me, look, my retention rate is 72, it tells me nothing. I have no idea what is a good or bad number for you. But if I see the pattern of retention rates over time by cohorts of customers, that I can actually see, okay, if you have now a drop, is your problem? Is there a competition? So I like the dynamics. I like to see lines over time of how behaviors change. And the behaviors I would definitely plot, I would have how, of course, usage patterns, like ARPU, depending on the service, and definitely retention rates over time, but not across the board, across customers who have been acquired at a similar time period in time. Because that's the only way if I can actually know if it's our company problem or is outside company problem. So the cohort could be what month they were acquired in. It could be how long they've been a member. It could be what the promotion was that brought them in or what the channel was that brought them in. I always start with dynamics on the age of the customer, either like cohort that when you were acquired, which is the same as you think, how well have you been with us? I believe, especially on the context of retention, there is a lot of attrition that is natural. There is a lot of attrition that will always be there. And if you plot the line of, you take a cohort of customers and you plot retention rates, there is a pattern that comes over and over and over again. So by looking at a retention rate across the board, you are hiding these differences. So that's why for me, it's like, I would look at retention rate, like by people who have been X time with the company and X plus one plus two plus, et cetera. So I like to see a customer like a natural lifetime and then it's like what happens along it. So that would be one thing. I would definitely look at overall patterns of usage and retention over time. That's for me the first. The second one would be now more about groups. Now, once I have hypothesized what would be the triggers for retention, for example, I work with many telecommunications, for example, there are triggers that they know predict churn very quickly, which is whether you call to the customer service in certain things whether the competition sometimes launched something X. So I would like to see in my dashboard some way to visualize this trigger and how big the trigger behaviors happen. So how often, so which proportion of my customers actually have engaged in this trigger and in this trigger and in this trigger? Oh, I love that. So for example, if you had, like you said, a telco and you know that one of the competitors offered a half off or a, some kind of a big deal, you'd almost want to note that on those lines that you were talking about. Absolutely. And see how big an impact that was and what drove it. And then you can, of course, design for the next time. Exactly. With the triggers also, I design for the next time, but with the triggers, I then go to then... So let's say I'm in a telco and imagine IT Mobile and then Verizon just launched this humongous campaign. And we all know that and they know that. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the... I have, say, three triggers of behavior. One is calling to the customer service. The other one is family plan, somebody canceled. Generally, like these things are very, and sometimes it's just you have zero usage for, say, two, three weeks. Imagine this is the three triggers I decided. So every single week, I keep track of the proportion of my customers that engage in this trigger. So if Verizon has this new campaign, 
the first thing I'm going to look is whether these triggers actually now happen to way more of my customers. And then I can quickly say, okay, tell me the customers who haven't done this. So now you start like narrowing the problem that you want to tackle. Because at this point, the problem is getting these people not to go there. And you know what the problem you're trying to tackle. If you give me a number of retention and you say, I just want to increase it, this is not even a problem to tackle. It's what I'm going to be doing, like lowering price so people increase retention. That's not going to create value. You know, it's like, I want to be more concrete. And I think the dashboard would be important to actually help the evolution of the business as well as highlighting things to tackle when the problems get precise. Because if all you have is your retention number and your retention was at, let's say 78, and now it's at 70 and leadership says, go fix it, right? You as the person responsible for fixing it are going to be much more effective if you know which trigger drove it. And so you can figure out which intervention is appropriate. And you can also say, which trigger drove it? And do I really care? Are these people that I actually want to invest in? Are these customers that are worth them? Because as we said, some customers are more valuable than others. And it may be okay with you that Verizon is taking away your least valuable, most price sensitive, most disloyal customers, subscribers. Exactly. In the case of this Verizon example, I would go and see if the triggers are alarmingly high. I would say, okay, who are the customers with these triggers? And then of course, I would look at which of those are worth for me to keep and which of those I can actually do something to keep them. Now, you're an academic and you research this. You come up with analysis. I have sort of two questions for you, and I'm trying to think of which order. One of them is, what is the one thing your students would say about you in terms of what they learned? What is the thing that they say, you know, Professor Escarza? Not about me, about my course. (laughs) What is the thing, you know, like I'm 30 years out of business school now, and there's certain professors where like, there's one thing that I still remember that they taught me. And it's sort of still there, kind of front of mind. What is it that you're hoping that they took away that they didn't know before they were there? It's a tough question. I teach two courses. And in both of them, one thing that I know they say, and I hope they say, it's not about the content, it's about the execution. They say that I push back a lot and I want to make them think. So if students come to class and leave the class and like, now I think more about these problems. I think differently. I think better. And I always insist on the thinking, because if you don't think first, your numbers are going to say whatever, your data scientist is going to say whatever, you're not going to help the business. So I hope that they would say that professor make us think. That's one of them. The second one, more in the context of the conversation we're having, one of the things that I always, not struggle, but I always try to insist is that when it comes to customer retention, many students just come to say, oh, let me identify who are the customers who are likely to churn. And I have a few classes on that. And in the class, I actually really hope that they leave the class thinking, well, no, first of all, I am going to think about why they're churning and what intervention I could have to actually change that behavior. Again, this is very on the context of this marketing problem. It relates to the other one. You have to think. So I hope you think about why the behavior is this and how the data analysis will help you there. But if you don't think it's, I think you're going to be just blurred. I think this is so important because it is easy to get overwhelmed by the data and to just look at the data and then say something, but to step back and say, what is this data trying to tell me? First of all, so measurement, what do I understand? What have I learned? And then what are the implications? What are my options? What are my guesses as to why this is happening? And how do I figure this out? 
that just requires, like you said, it just requires common sense. It requires thinking. It requires pushing yourself or your team members to say what could be causing this weird thing with the data. So a couple of questions, and then I'm going to wrap it up. I'm interested in kind of what's next for you and what you're studying now. You're the co-founder of the Customer Intelligence Lab at the DQ Institute at Harvard Business School. Your mission is to help organizations use their valuable customer data effectively and responsibly. So they kind of seem like they might be at odds, effectively and responsibly. What are you trying to do here? Good question. For most of my career, what I've done is developing methods or insights into how to increase the impact of interventions. Increased retention is one of them, increased value, whatever. And I've been preaching about the value of data because data help us get in there. But two things are at odds right now in my mind. One relates to the more you intervene, the more you personalize, the the more you do what this data-driven or AI approach is telling you, the more risks are there to actually end up with interventions or marketing tactics that you were not intended to do. For example, you would find yourself really giving price promotions to certain parts of the population. You could be preventing some people to access certain products in certain places. So in the journey towards precision and efficiency and effectiveness, we might actually lose that. So that is big, big, big discussion around algorithmic bias and unfair outcomes. And I'm not blaming the algorithms only. I'm blaming the people who us use the algorithm. So I think this data-driven marketing has become very precise to the point that sometimes we actually can exclude customers that we didn't mean to exclude. So that's one of the aspects of the responsible part of use of the data, meaning the outcomes of these data decisions align with your intentions. And if you did not intend to change prices separately by, say, race, for example, or gender, then you need to do it. You need to know it. So that's one of the missions of the lab with my copy. I wrote a paper about we develop an algorithm that helps you personalize an intervention, but always making sure that your outcomes, whatever the company is going to do, is equally likely to, to go to certain people in the population, however you define it. The other aspect to the responsibility is like, there is now the issue of data privacy is, is just growing and growing. It's going to continue growing because we need to protect data and we need to protect what customers want to be protected in their identities, their privacy, and, and so on. So every single step towards data privacy, by definition, is at odds with getting value from data. So there is this efficiency privacy trade-off. So part of the projects that I'm working on right now with some of my students here as well at HBS is like, okay, given that now data is going to be tackle differently. We're going to collect data differently because there is methods to actually make the data more private. Can we develop new methods that are as effective as before or as much as you can in effectiveness, knowing that the data is going to be protected for privacy reasons? I think as of now, companies are all worrying about privacy because it comes by the law. And many companies are seeing privacy as just a legal requirement. But I think it's more than that because the more we treat data with more privacy, the less we can actually do with the data. It's just by definition. So I think we need to think strategically about what are the marketing actions, what are the interventions that we use data for, and what are the implications for actually respecting privacy, which is coming and which we should, but actually how to actually manage this balance, this part of what we're doing in the in the lab. Is this where your students are coming up with rules and principles that they're sort of pushing out onto employers and companies, or are the companies interested in figuring this out? The lab is mainly collaboration with companies. 
In fact, what I say is student, I mean, in my PhD student, the idea of the lab is we are collaborating with many companies that we have now a brochure with a few surveys so we can actually screen companies like, oh, how can we be more helpful in both sides? Some companies are at the level that I have a lot of data, I don't know what to do with it. Other companies have been doing more data analysis for a longer time. They already are data-driven, but they think they could do better. And many others are actually, they have been doing for a long time, but now they are worried, for example, that they might have some algorithmic bias in their practices. So they reach out to us about how to actually, and then the way we collaborate with them is that I always want to run an academic paper that everybody can read. It's not the goal to consult with this company per se, it's to develop tools and develop frameworks we can write about as professors that will help everybody else, including this company, obviously. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's so important. And I personally am very worried about it. The way that data, there's just not a lot of laws. Laws can't keep up with what companies are able to do. I'm appreciative that you're doing this. It's a big, big steps that we need to take in the future. And uh, it's a very, very big problem, but this is the one we're trying to tackle now. Yeah, it's a good place to start. And a lot of tomorrow's leaders are at Harvard Business School and a lot of the execs that are mid-career doing your executive education programs. So I hope they hear this and I hope that they take it to heart. Fingers crossed. Okay, so I could keep talking to you all day, but let's close out with a little speed round just for fun. First subscription you ever had. Oh, no, I'm going to show how boring I am. Yeah, Amazon Prime, 2006 or seven, something like that. Your favorite subscription today that you recommend to other people? New York Times. Again, I'm going to show you how boring I am. <laughs> favorite place to hang out in Cambridge? Waypoint, $1 oysters every day before 7 p.m. <laughs> I didn't mean to be a promotional, actually. They don't know I'm talking this. <laughs> That's totally fine. It's totally great. Most compelling course you've ever taken? No, no, the probability models course that I mentioned, the PhD program. It was not compelling per se because it was very focused on one, but it was a game changer for me. Got it. And something you're learning right now? Differential privacy, which is one of the methods I told you about to actually make the data more private. Eva Scarza, thank you so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. I know my audience is going to learn a lot from you. So I really appreciate you taking time to teach us and to talk to us. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun, actually. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was great. That was Ava Escarza, Chakursky Family Associate Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. For more about Ava, go to avaescarza.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Ava, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcast or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Ava and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate every one of them. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.